Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. And grab your Bibles. We're going to continue our worship now. We're going to worship through study. Again, ascribing worth to the Lord through the study of his word. So grab your Bibles, turn on your devices, uh, and turn to John chapter 18. We'll be in John 18 today. We're continuing our series called That You May Believe, taking us all the way through the book of John chapter by chapter. Uh, We started off with some real gusto. Everyone, we were reading the chapter ahead of time. And, and I know you haven't been. I know, because we're humans, and it happens. Uh, but we're getting into some, into some real, I want to say good stuff. It's all good, but this is the real kind of, um, things are moving at this point in John chapter 18. We've got today and then three more weeks in the book of John, and we will finish studying that together. John chapter 18, the context where we find ourselves now is that Jesus has told his disciples about um, his death that is coming. They have um, walked into Jerusalem through much fanfare. Uh, They've had um, palm branches thrown on the ground, people claiming, Hosanna, Hosanna, our king is here. Save us now, save us. Jesus rode in on a colt. Um, He sent his disciples ahead of him and said, hey, find this man. He's got a room set up for us. We're going to do our uh, Passover feast up there. So they find themselves in an upper room later that week. Jesus is continuing to push back on the darkness of religion and how those in religious authority have co-opted their power uh, to guilt people uh, into following some sort of set of rules or regulations. I'm not saying that happens now. I'm saying that happened then. Uh, But again, this is what he's doing. So he's pushing back on that, reminding them of of who he is. They've had the Last Supper, this Passover feast he's had with his disciples. Um, He's washed their feet. He's been challenged by Peter. And Peter said, if you're going to wash me to cleanse me, then wash all of me. And Jesus says, I don't need to wash all of you, just your feet. I just need to wash your feet. You're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. I just need to get this dirt off of your feet. Washes the disciples' feet, uh, continues uh, that night to, to lay out who he is. They leave the upper room. They've made their way uh, down past the temple, and they're walking now uh, to a, the Garden of Gethsemane is where they're approaching. John is one of four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all have different perspectives of the same events that have happened. And so John has a particular interest in the stories that he has chosen because he tells us in John chapter 20, he's written these things that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And that by believing, we may have life in his name. And so the perspective he's chosen in these last moments is unique to him, uh, but that doesn't make it wrong. It makes it unique to him. So he tells this story now of them coming down and they're going to cross over a brook into the Garden of Gethsemane, where other gospel writers will say that Jesus prayed and he sweat drops of blood. Such intensity uh, was in his heart at that time that he sweat drops of blood. We're getting closer now to his arrest and then to his illegal trials in the darkness of night rather than uh, the brightness and the light of day. We're moving closer to his crucifixion, the apex of human history moving closer to his crucifixion and resurrection. But John gives us some details here in John chapter 18 that we have to pay attention to to really understand what's, what's being said here. So uh, we're gonna go through John chapter 18. It's really a series of vignettes that John puts together. 
Um, the way that I think the Lord has led me to teach this this morning is to particularly focus on the vignettes involving Peter. There are other vignettes uh, involving religious leaders and Roman leaders that happen and Jesus being tried and all that kinds of stuff happens here as well. But mixed in there, which is just beautiful storytelling, John mixes parts of Peter's life, particularly his denial of Jesus. Now, we know Peter. Uh, Peter is the rock. Jesus calls him, has changed his name to Peter, meaning rock, uh, really meaning stone, like small rock. But Peter thinks rock means like the rock, like Dwayne Johnson. And so Peter thinks he's that guy. Jesus, no, 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 I, I meant like pebble. And he's like, no, 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 you said boulders. No, no, no that's not what I said. And so Peter um, has this sense about him. But what we learn is that that's not rooted in kind of a braggadocious kind of pride. It's rooted in a lot of insecurity in Peter. Uh, Peter, like many of us, is just broken. He just has been told over and over again he's not good enough. He can't cut it. And even the voices externally, may, even though they have changed, the voices internally still raise their heads once in a while to remind him that he's not who he claims to be. So we meet Peter here. We're also going to come back in contact with Judas uh, Judas, the betrayer, Jesus, at that last supper, said, one of you will betray me. I said, well, who is it? He said, what's the one that dips his hand in the juice with me or in this with me with the bread? Judas does it, and Jesus says, hey, what you're going to do, go do it quickly. Judas leaves. He's already worked out a deal uh, with the authorities to turn Jesus into the authorities. He's worked out a deal with them. He goes to make it happen, and Jesus knows. Jesus knows as, as nightfall has come, and it's getting darker. He knows he's getting closer and closer uh, to this moment in his life. The hour is what he calls it. That The hour has come. So let's go to John chapter 18. Jesus has just prayed for his disciples, both present and future. That means us. And then verse 1 of John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples, these 11 men who were left, across the brook Kidron, if you're writing in your Bible, write, highlight, circle this, the Brook Kidron. We're going to talk about that here in a second. He crosses over the Brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Uh, back when we started this series, we said that John only, only uses about 600 words or so in this book, this book of John. Only 600 words that he uses in the Greek. And so he's, he is uh, peculiar in particular with the words that he chooses and why he chooses to use them and when he chooses to use them. So whenever he gives us random details that seem random, we have to remember it, he's intentional with what he's giving us. You see, he names this brook that they cross over. The brook Kidron is what he names. He names it. Uh, Kidron meaning dark or cloudy, um, opaque is kind of the idea. That you, he says they crossed over the brook Kidron to get to the garden, which is called the Garden of Gethsemane. John tells us the name of this brook. There's a valley there called the Valley of Kidron. And in this valley, a lot of dark things happen in the Old Testament. Number of wars, number of deaths. Uh, this, this valley into the brook is where David ran from his son Absalom as Absalom was out to kill him. A number of significant things have happened here. Once the temple was built in Jerusalem, this brook runs from the temple down out uh, away, really far away from the temple, this small stream. And sometimes there's not even water in it. Sometimes there is. But at this time of year, when it would have been the Passover, Jews from all over the area would have gathered together in Jerusalem, and they would have brought sacrificial lambs, or they would have purchased lambs there at the temple, and they would have sacrificed these lambs. This brook Kidron would have taken the blood of the lambs, and it would have flowed from the temple out 
to the extremities way far away from the temple. The idea being that if the sacrifice represented sin, this brook would then take all of that sin and darkness far, far away from the purity of the temple of God. So when Jesus crosses over the brook Kidron, John is intentional in telling us where and why and which brook this is. It's well known to a Jewish audience. It's mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament. Of particular importance to us today and in this passage is in 2 Chronicles, where it's mentioned that kings, uh, kings of Jesus, people who are following, following God at that point, would find idols and would find the people of God worshiping idols rather than worshiping God. Whenever uh, Israel would conquer land, they would go to the high places and they would find the idols. And the Bible tells us they would tear down those idols. They would tear down the idols, but in St. Chronicles we read, they would bring them to this brook. They would bring them to this brook, this Kidron Valley, this small brook of water. They would destroy the idols and then they would pour the remnants of the idol into the brook so that the brook would carry the evil of idolatry away from the center of worship of God and far away to where they wouldn't have to deal with it again. So this has become a place for a Jewish reader, someone who is familiar with the Old Testament, someone who's familiar with Jewish tradition and history. They would know this brook, Kidron, is the way that God um, sanctifies, he cleanses his people from idolatry. We're crossing over, and this is what John is wanting us to know, that this is important, what's happening. He's crossing over this brook of Kidron. The idols were torn down, put into this Kidron brook. Now, a number of idols have been torn down. A number of um, false gods have been worshipped. Some claimed or named false gods. An idol for us, so when we hear idolatry, what we think of is that um, that little Buddha at the Chinese restaurant doing this. It's where you get your mints after you eat your sesame chicken. That, that's, where, that's where you get it. Um, so we're like, oh, I don't worship idols. Okay, um, Tim Keller says that idolatry happens when we make a good thing an ultimate thing. That's what idolatry is. And so while we're not rubbing uh, Buddha's belly, while we're not doing that particularly, we do have idols that we worship, don't we? We have other things that have captivated our hearts that we give our affection and our um, honor to, and we don't worship the Lord. We instead worship um, academics. Instead, we worship politics, or we worship um, how we look. We worship influencers. We worship sports. We worship the weather. We uh, worship the lake. We worship skiing and tubing. That's what we worship. We worship the summer. Anything that's captured our affection and taken away from the Lord. We worship our spouse. We worship our kids. This is what idolatry is. So much of the Old Testament, God, as a jealous God, a consuming consuming fire, has torn down the idolatry in the world. But there's one idol still standing, one that's left remaining, and that's the idol of religion, which underneath that is just the idol of self, self self-idolatry. When you think about the roots of religion, religion is just the way that we prove our worthiness. That's what religion is. Religion is a way that I worship myself, I elevate myself to a place that only Jesus can take me to. Religious behavior, religion in the darkest sense is idolatry. It's worshiping myself, worshiping behavior, worshiping the modification of my behavior. And religion is not a bad thing until it becomes an idol, and it's when you make a good thing, an ultimate thing, that it becomes idolatry. And Jesus, I'm going to prove this through the text. I think Jesus crosses the the Kidron Brook. 
And John's letting us know because there's an idol he needs to tear down. And John now is going to introduce, reintroduce us to two main characters of his book, particularly in the last few chapters. Look at verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, in case you forgot, Judas, who betrayed him. This is how Judas would be known. He would be known as the betrayer. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, this place in the garden, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. You're going to see as we read through this, the difference and the different uh, kind of mentality in the way in which Jesus operates versus the human disciples that are following him. Judas comes in the middle of the night, and he comes to a place where he knows Jesus would be. Now, Jesus knows things that Judas doesn't know. It would seem like if Jesus was a really good spy, if he was, if he was a really good bond agent, he wouldn't go there. Because he knows that's the first place Judas is going to look. But we're going to see something about Jesus. He doesn't run from it. So Judas, who betrayed him? So now John's going to reintroduce us to Judas. Verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there, went to a garden with lanterns and torches and weapons. I don't know um, how you perceive gardens to be. I always think they're peaceful places. There's flowers and butterflies, and um, there's just beauty galore. Apparently, Judas thinks it's time for war. And so Judas gets a band of soldiers. Um, and if you've seen a passion play or you've seen that in church, you're like, oh, there's like five or six guys with him. This is over 600 men have come with Judas, trampling over someone's flowers. That's just sad. In the garden, butterflies are scurrying, bunnies are hopping away. And he brings 600 soldiers with him, a detachment of soldiers, Roman soldiers, clanging armor, swords bouncing, walking with Judas. He knows Jesus will be there, but he brings a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests. So he's brought Roman authority and he's brought religious authority with him. And he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. If you write in your Bible, which I would suggest, circle that word weapons, underline it. We're going to come back to it. He brings torches and lanterns. That's a way in which you would find someone who was hiding. And Jesus, over and over again, over the next couple of chapters, will say, I've never hid. Why did you come with that? I'm not hiding. Comes with torches and lanterns and weapons. Judas is ready for war. And he comes to uh, meet Jesus. Verse 4. And then Jesus... Then John tells us, knowing all that would happen to him. He's not ignorant. He's not blind to what's coming. He does, he's not hoping for a different scenario. Knowing all that would happen to him, then read this next phrase, came forward. Remember, Judas did everything under the guise of secrecy. He went and met with officials, got his payment under the guise of secrecy. He probably made some excuse to go leave, all that. All that. And yet Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, steps into the light. And he says to these men, these 600 plus men, whom do you seek? I appreciate him using good English. Whom? Whom do you seek? Verse five. He didn't speak English. Verse five. That got confusing for all of us. Verse five. Uh, they answered him. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is... They don't say the Christ, don't say the Messiah, don't say the Son of God or the Son of Man. What they're saying is, we're looking for a human named Jesus. 
The old phrase uh, was, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. This is a bit of an insult, saying, oh yeah, we're looking, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, and this translation says, I am he. In the original language, there is no he on it. Jesus just says, I am. And if you've been paying attention, Jesus has said that seven other times throughout the book of John. And it's a reference back to Exodus when uh, Moses is speaking to God in the burning bush and Moses says, God, who, who do I tell um, the Israelites? Who do I tell the Egyptians that has sent me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. The I will be. So for a Jewish reader, a Jewish listener, and even for these people, this is a, this is a name of authority. This is a proclamation that he makes. And you're gonna see the power of it. He steps forward. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, thank you, John. We had forgotten about this. Judas, who, John, John's making a point. Judas is a betrayer. This is who Judas is. But then look at this next phrase, was standing with them. Who is he standing with? Well, he's standing with the Roman cohort of 600 soldiers. He's standing with the religious authorities out to catch Jesus and to trap him and to kill him. He is with them. Remember John chapter 17, Jesus said uh, when he was praying to, to, to God about his followers, his disciples, he said, they are not of the world. And now here is Judas standing with the world. John's letting us know he's drawn the line in the sand. I'm with them now. I'm not with you, Jesus. He was standing with them. But then look at verse six. When Jesus said to them, I am, or I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Soldiers, 600 of them with lanterns and torches and weapons, approaching Jesus in the middle of a garden, unarmed, who steps forward into the light. They call him a name, Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus just says, I am, and they fall back to the ground. The power of Jesus on display in the Garden of Gethsemane without a weapon in his hand. All he says is, I am. John says, they drew back, they fell back in retreat, and they fell to the ground. And then Jesus, if you need more reasons to love Jesus, just look at this next one, verse seven. And he asked them again, whom do you seek? Which, I need you to use some sanctified amount. They're on the ground, weapons scattered, some of them crying, some of them have soiled themselves. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm sorry, who was it you said you were looking for? I mean, come on. Like, let's, let's worship him right now for that. That's all. That's all we need. And he says, who, um, you didn't answer me. Who are you looking for? And they're like, oh, Jesus of Nazareth. I think. Verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you, I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. Again, you need to notice uh, the distinction here between Judas and Jesus. Judas comes with 600 armed men, lanterns and torches and weapons. He comes with uh, religious leaders as well, come in the middle of the night to arrest Jesus. And he's there trying to protect himself, and yet Jesus is protecting his people. Well, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. He stepped forward 
I am who you are looking for. Let these men go. Verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Sometime you should research these last few nights, or these last few moments of Jesus' life and see how many Old Testament prophecies he fulfills that seem insignificant to our salvation and yet reminds us of the faithfulness of God, even to the most minute detail of no broken bones. Verse 9, or verse 10. Then Simon Peter. Okay, so John now, painting a picture, telling a beautiful story. You've got Jesus, we've met Judas, and now we're back to Simon Peter. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Jesus says, hey, let them go. You're here for me. Jesus has no weapon. Jesus says, I am. They fall to the ground. Peter witnessed the power of Jesus just with his words. And Peter decides, you need my help. And we can laugh, but isn't that us sometimes? You witness the power of Jesus in your life. And you're like, yeah, 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 but you need me with my sword, don't you? We do it all the time. Peter steps forward with his sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Don't have time for this. Malchus's name means king or kingdom. Again, details are important because there's so um, few words that John chooses. Peter attacks the kingdom with a sword. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Isn't this what I came for, Peter? Stop, just stop. Uh, Luke tells us it's a little more emphatic than that. He yells at Peter, um, but this is what's happening here. So again, Jude, uh, John's telling us a story. He's giving us an account and he's choosing particular scenes by which to tell us what he really wants to tell us. I want you to notice this first and foremost. Both Judas and Peter brought swords. They both, both brought weapons. They both, they both sought violence or, or prepared for violence. Judas and Peter both brought weapons. They both brought swords. Throughout the rest of John chapter 18... John's going to tell us something subtle, that Peter is the new Judas. We're going to see this. Peter is the new Judas. They both bring swords. Judas brought a sword to protect himself, right? He brought the 600 men with weapons and lanterns and torches to protect himself. Because if this goes bad, I need you to handle him. Judas brought the sword to protect himself. I think Peter brought the sword to prove himself. Peter has constantly told Jesus, I will never deny you. I'll never betray you. I will fight. I would die for you. And Jesus says, actually, you won't because there's coming a time tonight when you will deny me three times before the sun comes up, before the rooster crows. I think Peter was prepared to prove himself to Jesus. And John's trying to let us know that Peter and Judas are the same. They're the same. This is the idol of self. It's the idol of um, self-worship that you seek to protect yourself and or to prove yourself 
when you're with Jesus. Self-idolatry reveals itself in these two ways. You bring swords to either protect yourself or to prove yourself. We'll come back to that in a bit. We're gonna um, skip past verses 12 and 14. John tells us about Annas and Caiaphas and things that are happening there just in interest of time. We're gonna go to the next scene of Peter in verse 15. So they've taken Jesus um, before the high priest But then verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, most scholars believe that's that's John. He's speaking of himself. There's all kinds of reasons why, but they believe it's John saying that he was also with Peter. Since that disciple, which we're going to believe is John, was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. One of the reasons we believe that is John is because John was the son of Zebedee. Uh, Zebedee was a wealthy fisherman who owned a bunch of fishing boats, like a, a fleet of fishermen. And he, he was a wealthy man. And like in every society, a wealthy people seemed to buddy up with the political rulers of, of the day. So this is, what, this is what the belief is, that he had some kind of relation, some kind of friendship with Caiaphas or with Annas. And so that, that's what we believe here. But I want you to Pay attention to what's happening. They enter into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, it would have been set up almost like a horseshoe. Um, high priest authorities would have had different rooms, even lodging. In the middle would have been a courtyard where people came to gather, to wait for trial, to um, even just to gather. Sometimes the poor would be there to ask for alms. This is where they entered, the courtyard of the high priest. Verse 16, but Peter stood outside at the door. You're going to watch this journey of Peter. Now he's outside, verse 16. But the other disciple, this is John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door. A servant girl would have been anywhere from 13 to 15 years old. And brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. John chapter 18, Jesus steps forward and says, I am. Peter, questioned about his identity, says, I am not. Peter is more like Judas than he is like Jesus. Now, the servants and officers, this is verse 18, had made a charcoal fire. Remember charcoal fire? We'll come back to that in three weeks. Because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves, Peter also was, you can say it out loud, also was with them. You remember Judas? He was standing with them. Judas made a distinct line in the sand saying, no, no, I'm no longer with you, Jesus. I am now with these people. Peter is subtly making the same statement. He is with them, standing and warming himself. Peter is the new Judas. Verse 25. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. John 18, verse 5, Jesus says, I am. And again, Peter says, I am not. Peter is more like Judas than he is like Jesus. It's the point John's trying to make. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, 
Oops. Don't you just love the sovereignty of God? 600 soldiers. And Peter happens to get the guy's ear who had a relative who'd be at the charcoal fire that night. Like, you, you, don't, think, you don't think God's in control? A relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. See, John tells us the detail about Malchus's relative because he wants us to go back up into the beginning of the story to remind ourselves. Even up there in verses 1 through 11, we're tempted to see Judas as a bad guy and Peter as a good guy. And John's trying to let us know, uh-uh, we're all bad guys. We're all bad guys. But there's the idol of self-worship. The idol of self is, no, 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 I can prove that I'm not. Luke chapter 22, I just want to wrap up the end of this. Luke chapter 22, Luke tells us a perspective that is important for us, and it's going to reveal things in our own hearts. Luke chapter 22, look at verses 60 through 62. Uh, same series of events. Peter has denied Jesus three times. This is the, the third time, uh, verse 60. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. This is exactly from John 18, 26 or 27. But then look what Luke adds for us in 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. They're in the courtyard. Jesus is probably at this point being escorted from um, Caiaphas' house to another authority. And Jesus looks at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So when we read that, uh, maybe you're like me, that you've had a moment like that before when you're just caught. Does that happen for you? If it's safer just to admit that happened in elementary school, that's fine. We can talk about that story. Um, but you have that moment when you're, you're caught red-handed. Your hand's in the cookie jar, whatever it is. You're, you're busted in your sin. You're busted. The Bible tells us that Jesus looked at Peter. And depending on where we fall in our history, in our story, and in our personality, uh, we might read that a bit differently, right? When we see that Peter, Jesus looked at Peter, how many of you picture a look of disappointment in Jesus' eyes? You can raise your hand, just honestly. How many of you think Jesus is, based on your experience, listen, we're, we're all gonna get it wrong. It's fine, just raise your hand. You're gonna pick a wrong one with me, okay? How many of you uh, think it's a, a look of anger? Jesus is angry with Peter. Now, he's, he's gonna pay for this. Anybody would say, yeah, he's angry at what he's done. He has denied him. You have experience with a father who looked at you with an angry eye? Nobody. Just, okay, fine. And then this is what, what happens for us, is, and this is what happens. We then, this very story and how Jesus looks at Peter is an evidence and reveals to us how we feel about Jesus in regards to our sin. If you think Jesus looked at Peter with disappointment, you believe Jesus is disappointed in you. If you think that Jesus looked at Peter with anger, you think Jesus is angry with you. If you believe that Jesus looked at Peter with frustration, you believe that in your sin, Jesus has become frustrated with you. This is what's happened for us. With the idol of self, we have elevated ourselves to a place where we can create that in Jesus. 
Jesus is standing before 600 soldiers and doesn't break face. He's not intimidated. He's not scared. He's not frightened. He's not discouraged. He just says, yep, I am. And yet somehow we believe that we have the power to alter the emotions of Jesus. Jesus, this word here in Luke chapter 22, is the Greek word to look at with concern and care. Jesus is not angry at Peter, and he's not disappointed in Peter. He's not frustrated with Peter. He is worried about Peter. This is Jesus telling Peter, listen, I see you. And even that for us, oh, I don't want to hear that you saw me doing that. Jesus is telling Peter, no, listen, I, I still see you. I still see you. In the midst of your sin, I still see you. I see you. I'm with you. I, I saw it. I told you it was going to happen, and it happened. With compassion and concern, he sees Peter. He gazes upon Peter. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Religion says Jesus looked at him and demanded that he fix it. Religion says that Jesus looked at Peter and demanded he never do it again. Religion tells us that Jesus looked at Peter and said, I'm done with you. But the gospel says Jesus gazed upon the heart of Peter and said, I'm still with you. I'm still with you. Yeah, yeah, but I thought you said that, that Peter is the new Judas. He is. And yet, Jesus says, I'm with you, Peter. I'm still with you. I'm still with you. This reveals our idolatry. How we approach Jesus in our sin reveals our idolatry. In your sin, do you, like me, run from Jesus? Then I have some idolatry in my heart of myself in believing that I have to get it right before I run to Jesus, that I have to clean myself up, that I have to get back on the right track, that I have to stop listening to that music, stop watching those things. It's the idol of self, believing that myself has more authority and power than Jesus does. Or do you, like we should, do you run to Jesus in your sin, knowing that he sees you, knowing that he hasn't left you and forsaken you, knowing that he is with you? Even when you are with them, he is with you. It's the gospel. So let me just set us free as I wrap up and Jeffrey comes up to wrap us up. Let me just give us a few things for us. First of all, I want to set you free in this. You are not Jesus. We want to read the gospel accounts of Jesus and we want to make ourselves Jesus. We are not Jesus. We are not faithful to the end. We don't step forward and say, I am. We bring weapons to the garden. That's who we are. You're not Jesus. We are Judas and we are Peter and we are Annas and we are Caiaphas and we are Pilate and we are the soldiers, but we are not Jesus. And any form of Christianity that tells you that you are Jesus is a lie. 
You're not the Savior. You're not your own Jesus. You're not your children's Jesus. You're not your spouse's Jesus. You're not your co-worker's Jesus. There's one Jesus, one Lord of all. And I'm not it. And you are not it. I am Peter. Which means that I am Judas. Which means I'm Pilate. Which means that I'm Caiaphas and Annas and I'm the band of soldiers. I want to puff myself up to think that I'm something that I am not. But I'm a betrayer and I'm a denier. And Jesus looks on me with compassion and grace. And he says, I'm still with you. I'm still with you. Still with you. This morning, I don't um, know where you find yourself in the idol of self. To ask ourselves a couple of questions. Um, First is this, do you bring a sword to the garden? When you come to meet with Jesus, do you bring a weapon? Many of us, like Judas, we bring a weapon to protect ourselves. And so we have all the reasons why we aren't as bad or we aren't that or we aren't this. And, well, I'm not like that person. I never did that sin or I never did this. And, or we, we have ways to twist Scripture to protect ourselves from the wrath of God. Don't we? We know we're wrong. But like Judas, we procure a band of soldiers to protect us. Maybe there's some of us today walking in complete blatant sin. And you've packed yourself some weapons and you've got yourself a band of soldiers to protect yourself for when that day comes. And you've got your defense lined up and you're gonna tell us why you aren't that person and why this isn't what is happening or whatever you're gonna tell us. And why the Bible says, no, no, I actually can participate in this sin. And why, why apparently somehow God um, is going to let you slide, even though he's never let anyone else slide on that in the history of the world. You brought a weapon to protect yourself. Then there are a lot of us, I think, probably more predominantly have brought a weapon to prove ourselves today. And you come to Jesus in the midst of your sin, or he catches you in sin. You say, yeah, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better. I got this sword. I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to uh, schedule these things and do these things. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to do better. I'm going to stop looking at that. I'm going to, I'm going to shut my phone off. I'm going to put these things on my computer. And Jesus is saying, I, I can use my words to do more than your sword can do. You don't have to prove yourself to Jesus. It's the idol of self. Jesus crushed your idol of self at the cross. It's the last idol he tore down by saying you could never do what I'm gonna do on your behalf. John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says that no one takes his life from him. He lays it down on his own accord. And he has the authority to lay it down and he has the authority to take it up again. He does. Peter doesn't, Judas doesn't. Jesus does. Do you bow your heads and close your eyes as we process some of this today. John is uh, just brilliant in the way that he lays these last hours of Jesus' life out for us, and it's a way that should conjure up some things for us. To be set free from the idolatry of ourselves, we're going to have to tear idols down. 
options. We have to confess and repent. The idol self will lead you a number of different places. But what's true about it is that you bring a sword to the garden. So anyone this morning who would say, I'm like Judas, and I bring a sword for protection. You would raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me. I bring a sword of protection. I'm going to um, argue myself into it. I'm going to defend myself. I'm I'm going to defend myself. Praise the Lord for your honesty. How many of you would say, no, I'm more like Peter. I bring a sword to prove myself. I have a, a list of ways that I am good, a list of ways that I've done the right things. And How could he? And Yeah. The good news of the gospel of Jesus is that he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. With just his words, the enemies stagger back and fall. So we can put our swords away. Is there anybody here this morning who would say that all of that has actually led them to recognize that they don't know Jesus? They're good at religion. You're good at religion. You're good at doing the right things, or you were, and then you realize how empty that was, so you chased other things. Anybody this morning say, I just, I, I want to know Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. It's a confession of our sins, belief that he is who he says he is that we might find life in his name. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the gospel and the good news that I am not you. I would make a mess of this thing. I'm not my own savior. I, don't, I can't save my wife. I can't save my kids. I can't save our church. I can't save coworkers. I can't, uh, but you can. God, forgive me for the times that I've, I've wielded a weapon to protect myself from you. Forgive me for the times that I've wielded a weapon to prove myself to you. I thank you that you still see me. And there are people in the room this morning who just need to know that they're seen by you. Not by means of punishment, but by means of compassion. And you've prayed for them. That they may not fail, but when they do, they would return and strengthen their brothers. In Jesus' name, amen.